the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you kindly, and welcome on board to this Wednesday edition of Lifeline, the 11th day of April. Hope you're having a good week so far. It is... um, Doubtful whether or not Mark Zuckerberg would necessarily (laughs) consider this a good week. After two grueling days of testimony on the Hill, at times, um, I I don't know whether who was more confused, members of Congress asking questions about much of matters that they don't really truly understand, or the awkwardness almost at times, oh, shucks, testimony, by Mark Zuckerberg, not anywhere nearly coming across as what you would expect from a Silicon Valley money titan. And yet that's what he is. Yet hard to tell from some of the testimony. Ah, yes, if there was only something to talk to Joyce Cordy about. It's one of those low news weeks where you just have to, you know, get on the radio and Swap recipes or something. (laughs) Joyce Cordy, of course, is the host of Reimagine America, heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. She is the founder and president of ReimagineAmerica.org, and she joins us now live from Washington, D.C. Joyce, good evening to you back there. Well, good evening. Well, good afternoon to you. So, Joyce, yes, you're, yes. you're right there in the thick of it all, and I'm just curious, uh, in your, uh, your travels today inside the Beltway, uh, and from your own personal perspective, what did you make of the testimony, the end of uh, two days of grilling testimony on the Hill in, in front of um, Senate committees by Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, I think Mark got off scot-free. Um, when, when, when they start asking Mark Zuckerberg how he would regulate himself, I think think they're, they're thoroughly confused. I mean, his, his first day approach was to say, I'll have my staff get back to you on that. Um, I, I, I actually did try to get into the hearing today, but. Um, while I, they acknowledge that I'm media, I wasn't credentialed, so I couldn't get in. Um, <clears throat> there was a mass of humanity there. I think there were more reporters there today than there were uh, with anyone, than there were uh, members and staff. Um, I don't think they. I don't think they touched him. Um, I found most amusing the four-inch cushion on the chair, so he'd look taller. <laughs> He, he's a tiny guy. Most people don't know. He, he only measures five seven five eight. And while you would think differently five, from seven. the photographs, he apparently uh, has pictures taken in a very well executed, directed fashion to give him the appearance of being much taller than he actually is. 
Yes, but the Washington Post this morning outed him big time. They have a picture on. They had a picture on the front page of the Washington Post of him sitting on his booster chair. <laughs> Well, he did at times. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I thought, beyond the fact, and I concur with you, that it seems as if uh, largely uh, the senators kind of gave him a, an easy get-out-of-jail card. I mean, there was talk about privacy and safety and protecting democracy and uh, much interrogation yeah. related to Cambridge Analytica. But at the end of the day, I thought, you know, uh, with the exception of one or two zingers by the likes of uh, Ted Cruz or... Uh, um, Lindsey Graham, they largely kind of get let him get off the hook, and there were times when he seemed awkward, other times when he appeared to be very out of touch for a guy that's supposed to be in charge, and, and had an awful lot of, I don't know, sort of this aw shucks, aw shucks testimony that seemed to beguile a man who's a multi-billionaire and in charge of a multi-billion dollar corporation. Well, I think Lindsey Graham hit upon something, Lindsey would definitely tell you, uh, he's, Lindsey Graham's not a techie, okay? I, I can tell you from my own, you know, not from observation, from actually talking to him about it, the guy really still does have a flip phone. So um, I wouldn't look at him from a, from a technology, I wouldn't look at what Graham said from a technology thing, but the question of monopoly was um, probably the most important question asked today. And it is not just a question of Facebook. You know, there is a theory, a friend of mine uh, wrote a book about the life cycle of tech companies, and if you average it out, it's about 20 years. Um, And we are seeing our teenagers today, um, the kids who four or five years ago when they were teenagers got hooked on Facebook are now still using Facebook, but kids are now using Snapchat and some other smaller apps, which are still independent, because they don't want their parents to spy on them. And so as they get used to using these other apps, that will have a long-term impact on Facebook um, as the dominant player in the market, and God knows what new technology will come along. The real risk, and we've talked about this before, is the power of the algorithm in the wrong hands. And part of what Mark had trouble with today was the question about whether or not there is censorship of conservative um, uh, uh, commentary on Facebook and whether or not there is a bias. And and so here's the problem, is that there are um, thousands of people somewhere. They are not in Silicon Valley. But there are thousands of people somewhere who are looking at the data based on algorithms to determine whether it's um, hate speech or whatever. And that these are... Uh, made, these are decisions made in nanoseconds by human beings. And isn't it terribly difficult in that regard to make these decisions, Joyce, because so much of it is so subjective 
And even if we try to apply a community standards guideline to it, for example, the way the Supreme Court does when trying to determine what pornography is, what was the one uh, famous phrase by a member of the high court? I don't know what pornography is, but I know what it is when I see it. Uh, So, you know, given the fact that to each his own, some might see something and say, I find that patently and blatantly offensive, it shouldn't go up. And others say, well, wait a minute, Uh, that's something that's core to my personal belief system. How do they even go about coming up with an algorithm from a technological standpoint or with a community standard guideline from a human standpoint that will provide any sort of consistency across the platform as to what goes and what stays? They, they can't, which is why they use humans to uh, look at what they consider potentially suspicious within the algorithm. And then, of course, because those are humans, their judgment is subjective. Now, I don't know what they mean by conservative media because, frankly, I've never heard of either of the so-called conservatives who feel they're being censored. So they must be relatively extreme. Um, and and so I, I'm not sure I'm going to say Facebook is right or wrong. I am concerned about the fact that the algorithm is programmed to look for certain keywords. It's like what we went through with the IRS. And it could just as easily be on the left. You know, it, it's not... It's not um, it, it the tool itself is agnostic. You, you just you tell it what you want it to look for, um, and and if and so the subjectivity is buried in the technology. But aside from that, on the broader issue, I, I want to pivot to 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 another angle of this. On the, on the broader issue of not only controlling and maintaining community standards, but the broader underlying issue that everybody seems to be upset with, and that is the collecting and dissemination, sale or otherwise of personal private information. Now, repeatedly, Zuckerberg insisted they're not in the business of selling information, and yet if that's not the case, then how did Cambridge Analytica get their hands on the details of more than 87 million Facebook users? That said, can we really, or why should we really, trust Facebook to ensure our privacy? And isn't there a degree to which that seems to be almost oxymoronic for a platform that insists that you divulge every single detail? I mean, I had a conversation with a colleague here today and said, I find it curious that if you go through Facebook, you could easily, if you were attempting to try and hack into somebody's um, bank account, say, come up with a lot of the answers to their security questions. What was the name of the elementary school that you went to? What was your grandfather's first name? What's your favorite color? What was your first automobile? These sorts of questions that are typical as sort of the backdoor controls for secured banking sites, et cetera, et cetera, is all information that anybody could easily glean right off the, your home your your home profile page at Facebook. Well, it, it, it's worse than that. If you're you're focusing on Facebook as though Facebook is an is is an island. It's not. When you they what what these algorithms are capable of doing is crossing platforms. So, um, you know, when was the last time you Googled yourself? Yeah, that's the amazing thing, isn't it? You've got you've got. I think you've hit a nail on the head here. 
uh, Joyce, and that is that the broader issue is that when you couple online data that's available through what seemingly from a social connectivity viewpoint is a fairly innocuous website like Facebook, and then you gather all of the other information that's out there to one degree or another, it's shocking how much can be cobbled together. Suddenly you find out people have access to where you live, uh, your email address, your home telephone number, your home address, your age, an awful lot of personal information in the wrong hands could very easily be used for identity theft or other nefarious activities. I can tell you, you can you can find you know you can find exactly where I live. You can find um, uh, what what I pay on my lease. You can uh, tie me to uh, two generations in my family. Um, None of which I've ever given anybody permission, and you know me well. I'm a really private person, right? I'm careful about what I say. I'm careful about what I divulge. And yet I can go out on on Google or Facebook and find out all sorts of stuff about myself, none of which... I want anyone to know. But, you know, the, the bigger, broader issue here, then, is not just the degree of culpability by Facebook and whether or not Zuckerberg and company are doing a sufficient job at protecting users' information, but the broader question of the constitutionality, legality, and right to privacy, or lack thereof, in the digital age, which is a topic, quite frankly, that not only has Congress never tackled at any serious degree, but so many of them, I think, are hard-pressed to even really understand it. If you've just joined us, joining us tonight from Washington, D.C., is Joyce Cordy. Joyce is the founder and president of Reimagine America. Her program can be heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation, including bombs over Syria... And whether or not the raid on the Trump attorney office was a violation of the attorney-client privilege. All that and more as our conversation with Joyce Cordy from Washington, D.C. continues in a moment. Right now, though, we're going to pause quickly, get you updated on traffic. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. The president has canceled a scheduled trip to South America, sending Vice President Mike Pence in his place in order that the president might remain in Washington, D.C. to address the unfolding recent, most recent, we should say, of the ongoing saga of Syria. Earlier today, in a flurry of tweets and statements, the situation between the United States and Russia over Syria continued to escalate, as correspondent Jill, Bill Zemfer reports. It all started with a Russian ambassador to Lebanon saying that Russia would shoot down any missiles fired towards Syria and attack the launch sites. President Trump then tweeted this morning telling Russia to get ready. The missiles were coming. This sparked a series of statements from Syria and Russia calling out the president for making inflammatory comments. All this as the president continues to consider military action after a chemical weapons attack in Syria. 
Bill Zimfer, NBC News Radio. All right, we continue our conversation. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Joyce Cordy. Joyce is the founder and president of Reimagine America. Her program, Reimagine America, can be heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Joyce, what is the buzz in the Beltway related to Syria? I, I know that one of the oddities, at least to me, seems that the president has been on record in the past criticizing previous administrations for divulging too much information pertaining to what their intentions were from a military standpoint. And yet, in this case, the president has been very open and bold, saying that they he fully intends to start dropping missiles over there, contrary, of course, to the response by Putin saying, if you do, we'll shoot them down. Well, uh, what's the buzz in town? The buzz is in town is, uh, does anybody remember how the, fir- how the First World War started? By accident, of course. So, no, you know, there is a degree of, of unpredictability here. Now, I did have at the um, big remembrance event for the Holocaust in the, in, the, in the Capitol building, I did have a conversation with Senator Cardin, um, and, and the Senate seems to have a sense, bipartisan sense, that something must be done, something I completely agree with. Um, but the, the mood in town today is... Um, Oh my God! You know you have to stop and think about what the consequences are. Um, the tweeting is causing number of people that I've talked to, who I'll allow to remain nameless, but members of the House and, and the Senate, uh, as well as people I've talked to, you know, just man on the street, um, it is is a concern that um, the president talks too much about these things in in ways that unnerve, you know, this is a military town, um, that unnerve uh, the military. Um, because the element of surprise is important. Um, you know, there's a hotline between um, the American general on the ground and the Russian general on the ground in Syria for a reason, and that's to uh, de-conflict um these situations and on the other hand we can no longer stand by we know that there are um 13 million displaced syrians in syria being attacked by their own government we know that more than half a million innocent people have been murdered we know there are six million in um in refugee camps in lebanon and jordan and if we want to look at the Palestinian situation, number of people, you know, have, have nodded yes, but, you know, when I make that analogy, that if we want another generation of terrorists, we should fail to act. So we must do something. The question becomes what? And, and there's a lot of concern here um, about the Twitter president. He, uh, we sent seven frigates and um, uh, destroyers into the Mediterranean to support the existing force. Um, there is pretty broad concern about the lack of strong allied support um, and the, com- the complication of um, Turkey because the Kurds have been our strongest allies 
in the war against ISIS. And yet now they're under attack by the Kurds, who are one, NATO members, and two, host a very important Air Force base for the United States. So Mattis was at the White House this afternoon, and God knows what the next steps are. Um, I'm, uh, it will, those frigates, it'll take a week before any of them reach the Mediterranean, at least. Um, is the president going to wait? Um, is he going to send B-52s from here? Um, there's a lot of rumor mongering and, and gossip and, you know, and then nobody wants to go on the record and nobody wants to be, and, and everybody's apprehensive. And I have to wonder, uh, you mentioned one of the players, um, NATO. The U.N. is another one that comes into question in relationship to the growing size, the enormity of this crisis. We know that the spillover impact has reached through many parts of Europe. Certainly Germany is constantly on the, the, the list of discussion along with Italy and the impact by the number of refugees, legal or otherwise, that have uh, been hosted by those two countries. And so it's, it's gotten to the point where you, you can't have the international community continue to overlook this. And yet there seems to be no answers coming forthwith out of either NATO or the U.N. And, and I, think that's, I think that's very troubling. Yesterday there was a, a U.N. Um, Security Council meeting uh, on the subject, and the, uh, the proposal was to send a commission to study, you know, the, the, the victims determine on the ground if this was indeed chlorine gas that killed these people over the weekend that started this current crisis. And, of course, the Russians, in their infinite um, uh, wisdom and their predictable behavior, vetoed that resolution, which is, of course, um, you know, it's like, you know, it's like Trey Gowdy said about Trump's behavior, if you're innocent, act like it. and so we know that the, that the Russians, when they promised that they would, would get all the chemical weapons out of Syria and all of the equipment to make them, et cetera, they're lying. And it's been a lie ever since. And we know, I just went through the numbers, and you know me, I run it by the numbers. We know that we have this, we have 20 million people who are still alive, thank God, who have been really impacted by this. I mean, this man is committing genocide against his own people. Um, I, I agree with Trump's sense of outrage, but a few missiles aren't going to solve the problem. You know, we're going to have to think about a better solution, and that does not mean U.S. Group, uh, U.S. troops on the ground. Well, you know, that comes back to the full circle issue that, you know, it's funny. We say that, well, the United States is never really at war with Russia. We've been engaged, however, historically in the Cold War from the end of World War II to the collapse of the former Soviet Union in the early 90s. And yet the irony is that's not entirely true that the United States has been to war with Russia multiple times. It's just that stuck in the middle was, I don't know, Take your choice, Korea, Vietnam, now Syria, 
And this continues to be a problem and an escalation, which, you know, I, I suppose, if anything, the, the lesson that should be, that could have been learned here, the old adage, keep your friends close and your enemies even closer, we had that opportunity in the Gorbachev-Yeltsin era, and sadly, we sort of spurned it when Putin came in office, and now we're beginning to see that Putin, in fact, is a lot more like, uh, I, I don't know, Brezhnev or uh, um, uh, Stalin in some respects than, than uh, certainly any of his predecessors. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and the United States is going to have to get its act together and decide just exactly what position, if any, we're going to take here. And meanwhile, uh, I would just sort of reiterate my call or the question, where is the U.N. and the rest of the global community in all of this, given the sheer numbers of people that are suffering as a result of Assad's behavior? We're out of time. I appreciate so much, Joyce, you breaking your schedule there in Washington, D.C. to spend a few moments with us here this evening. And when you get back here in uh, California land, we'd look forward to sitting down with you and spending a whole hour together because I know we've just barely scratched the surface of any of these topics. And we didn't even get a chance to talk about the whole FBI raid of Michael Cohen's office. So we'll have to do that in a subsequent edition of our conversation with Joyce Cordy. Again, her program, Reimagine America, Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Information, too, about her organization online at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. We've got some giveaways. Shall we do that right now? Yeah. And Jarrell says, yeah, why not? Okay. Just a turn here of direction, so I thought this would be an appropriate place to uh, to do that in. Billy Graham, we've got our hands on some limited edition audio devotionals featuring Dr. Billy Graham called Abiding in Christ. And we're going to send three of them out. Let's make this easy on you. We'll make it even easier on Jarrell because he's busy back there. Callers 1, 2, and 3. How's that? 888-367-5329. 888-367-5329. And the first of you to uh, not um, trip up over your shoelaces to get to the telephone and uh, give us a call will receive this complimentary copy of a audio devotional by Dr. Billy Graham called Abiding in Christ. Callers 1, 2, and 3 right now to 888-367-5329-888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. All right, and uh, while you're doing that, let's see what's doing traffic-wise. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, it strikes me in our conversation in the uh, previous segments with Joyce Cordy regarding the testimony on the Hill today and yesterday by Mark Zuckerberg, how much so that a lot of the focus is on the notion that today with technology, we have so many more ways to connect. You know, it was barely two generations ago that you had the option sometimes of the telephone, letter writing, in many cases, certainly during the World War, 
uh, was the only way that you could communicate with a loved one. So our choices, our resources were extremely limited. And yet today, in spite of the fact that we've got more ways and easier ways to connect, we seem to be a society that is becoming more and more disconnected. Witness the degree at which people suffer through loneliness. Think, well, my goodness, in 2018, I mean, with everything at your fingertips, is it possible to be lonely? And if so, how do we respond to it? Whether you're talking about a loved one that maybe has gone through a recent divorce, loss of a spouse, somebody that just simply is going through some things that makes social interaction difficult, and so they become more reclusive, and in doing so, um, find themselves suddenly in sort of this cocoon where they're isolated from other people, and as a result, the pain of loneliness and its impact begin to bear down. Today, we talk about this issue as we discuss the matter with Tiffany Blum. Tiffany is a wife, mother of two boys. She's a Bible study teacher and a book author. She's got a brand new book out called Guide to Embracing the Ultimate Cure for Loneliness. And it's simply entitled Never Alone. Tiffany, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a topic that, as I say, you know, you would think today it would be almost impossible to be lonely because, gee, we can reach out and touch so many people in so many ways. And yet, ironically, the issue of loneliness and its impact on lives and relationships is maybe arguably worse today than ever before. Why do you think that is? I think loneliness is a matter of the heart. I think any experience that we've had both in this season of our life or in past seasons of shame or rejection, they threaten our sense of identity, and they cause us to question if we are worthy of being seen or deeply known or loved and accepted just as we are. So there's fear of rejection. Maybe we've experienced rejection in the past. And so as a result of that, we set up, uh, what, walls that, that isolate us from other people? Yeah, we isolate in an attempt to protect ourselves, but what we end up doing is pushing everyone away because we feel like nobody will understand us and nobody will accept us if they really know who we are, what we've done, what's happened to us, or they'll reject us simply for who we are. Hmm. And, you know, as, as women, from the lunchroom when we're little girls to the playground to the prom to adults, we, we so fear that we'll be left alone to fight the hardest battles of our lives. Um, and the truth is that, that Christ is near no matter what we're going through. But because we have these situations that make us feel like nobody is for us, we wonder if we'll be left to fight all on our own and nobody will truly understand us. And the interesting irony is that that sense sometimes of, of the intentional disconnect in the horizontal plane, because we're afraid of disapproval or rejection or abandonment or whatever those issues are. How ironic that oftentimes that also describes our fear of intimacy with God as well because of our concern that we're going to be rejected or He will shine His disapproval upon us. Absolutely, absolutely. I believe they mirror each other, totally. So let's talk a bit about how you begin to address this problem, because so often there are individuals who, in addition to just the sense of isolation of being lonely, are wounded, 
they're hurting. Maybe in some ways they just don't know how to break through that barrier, those walls of protection that they've built around themselves. And climbing out from that or admitting that you're lonely is a difficult thing. Absolutely. I think first understanding that you are worthy of companionship. You're worthy of companionship with Christ and others. You are built, you are hardwired for it. So I think first understanding that this is for you. This isn't for everyone else who's got it all together. This is for you too. So when we first identify, like, I am built for this, I think we can then develop some self-awareness to see where have I got off track? Was there jealousy, rejection, abandonment? Um, was, what did I do to isolate myself? Where did it all start? Because so often we are looking for a new end to the same tragic plot lines in our lives, and we expect other people to fix them, or we expect things to get better, and when they don't, we think, this is who I am, this is my life, things are always going to go poorly for me. But when we see that, although we all crave a new ending to the broken storylines of our lives, when that is satiated and satisfied in Christ, we don't have to depend on others for what only Christ can heal and redeem in our lives. So I think it takes an understanding of, okay, where did this brokenness start that makes me feel alone? And then understanding that we can't expect the, the people with skin on around us in our lives to fix us. Um, Christ is our healer. And do we also have to acknowledge the fact that this is not necessarily something that is unique to just a personality type? And by that, oh, I mean, yes. sometimes people say, well, you know, so-and-so seems to be so funny. They've got such a nice personality. They're so outgoing. They should never have a problem with loneliness. Loneliness is simply something that attends to individuals that are withdrawn. They're a little bit awkward socially. Are there misnomers behind those sorts of conclusions? Absolutely. I believe so. I think, any, as I said, it's a matter of the heart. So when you find yourself feeling not seen, not heard, feeling like nobody understands you, nobody understands what you're going through, there isn't vulnerability to be shared with another in a safe space, I think that's where loneliness blossoms. Um, but I think that the, 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 the first lie we believe is thinking that nobody will understand my story. Nobody will understand what I've gone through. And, and that's a lie to ourselves in, in believing that we because first and foremost, Christ is for us. He is with us. He is acquainted with our grief. So understanding that if, if Christ is for us, we can believe that there's other people who can share that empathy and listen and come alongside us in our lives. And, and again, it, that can be anybody, no matter what you've gone through, no matter where you come from, no matter what socioeconomic standing you have in this world, I think that loneliness can find you. And, of course, loneliness finding you is probably an easier thing to do or experience to go through than you finding the answer of getting out of loneliness. And it's not an easy one, to be sure. And a lot of people feel as if, in addition to the sense of rejection or not finding people that will be able to relate, sometimes there is additionally that sense of, well, what if I reach out and nobody reaches back and I fail? Won't I feel even worse than I do now? We'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. Visiting today with author Tiffany Blum. She is the author of a new book and companion Bible study called Never Alone. And we are talking about this challenge as we look at a guide to embracing the ultimate cure for loneliness. A brief time out, back with more of our visit with Tiffany Blum as Lifeline continues. 545, and let's get a look at traffic for you here. Get you updated right now with the KFAX Traffic Center's 
Michael Bennett. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking today about the topic of loneliness, which seems to be odd in a day and an age of uh, so many ways to keep connected, get connected, stay connected, and yet Americans are having a more and more difficult time remaining connected and in many respects developing the kind of deep abiding relationships that will give you the kind of support that you need through the difficult times. And of course, there's nothing worse than going through a difficult experience and having no one there to support you and the attending loneliness Well, that's what drives so many people to mental health issues, contemplation of suicide, all of it. Tiffany Blum has written a book addressing the topic simply called Never Alone, Engaging Your Tender Hurts, Exchanging, rather, Exchanging Your Tender Hurts for God's Healing Grace. Let's let's talk about the aspect of of the fear here. Um, We've talked a lot about rejection, Tiffany, and one of the things I think that sometimes people are fearful to step out, they feel as if, well, the onus is on me to try and reach out, but if I reach out and I'm unsuccessful at the first try, I'll feel even worse. And so instead, I'm just going to sit here at home, hold a pity party, and wait till somebody to reach out to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that definitely plays a part, and often if we've been... Uh, fearful to reach out in the past, and if we, you know, even 20, 30 years ago, we reached out to somebody and we felt rejected, even if it happened on the playground, we can sit as a grown adult in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and think, this could happen again, and I remember that feeling, and when that does happen, per se, that feeling that we had all those years ago is amplified, that pain that was never dealt with, that was never addressed, that we felt deep within us is amplified and we play it over and over and over again as an adult. So I think that uh, being able to identify that, you know what, I am built for a relationship, I am built for companionship, and friendship isn't easy. It's sacrificial and it takes an enormous amount of generosity and kindness and, and you know, going second so someone can go first. But I think that moving past the fear of being alone really is first an understanding that just as I need love, so does everybody else. So do the people around me. They are just as deserving of companionship, both in Christ and each other, as I am. And and do we have to remind ourselves that at the end of the day, all relationships take work? Mm -hmm. Even even the most fine-tuned marriage relationship, ask either of the partners, and they will tell you, we got here through an awful lot of work. But at the end of the day, the work, the time, the effort, the sacrifice, the stepping aside to let somebody else, you know, go ahead, uh, so to speak, is well worth it because hopefully it pays off with greater dividends. In other words, that you wind up getting more out of the relationship than you feel as if you put in. So it makes it worthwhile. Absolutely. Does it become more difficult as we get older because of the accumulation of the hurt, the wound, if you've gone through multiple marriage relationships or uh, friendships that came and went. And as you get older, does your ability to bounce back from these hurt relationships um, make it more challenging, therefore, to kind of break through the barriers? I think it depends on your experience. I think how you have handled the relationships in the past will determine how you handle them in the future. So I think being able to have um, a healthy understanding of understanding sometimes you know, people walk away in friendship or relationships. Sometimes they wait it out. Sometimes they uh, are with you till the end. And I think uh, it's often tested the most at, in transition. You know, a divorce or a 
or moving or a new job or all these times of transition. And when you can invite somebody into a time when you're not even sure what's going on in your own life and they can be a voice of truth, I think that just solidifies the understanding that I am loved for who I am. I don't need to fear not being understood. I don't need to fear not being enough. I am enough. And the people around me feel that I'm enough. But then again, on the flip side, if you're going through something rough um, in any decade and you feel like people don't understand you and you feel like completely misunderstood and that you have to act or do or be something to be accepted, then I feel like we become what we need to be accepted by the people around us. And that's that's never healthy versus being uh, just a child of God as we were intended to be. Um, so I think it really just depends on how you've handled it and how you're, how, you know, just your headspace moving forward of willing to engage failure and willing to engage failed relationships and understanding there are necessary endings to relationships in our lives. And there's fear in that. I think that there's fear thinking, if I end a relationship, am I going to be loved again? Am I going to be understood again? But we are each built for the fullness of God alive inside of us. And so understanding that in companionship with him, that should mirror how we walk out our companionship uh, in the other relationships in our lives. And some relationships have seasons, too, don't they? And I ask that question because I think of my circle of friends today and the people that I hung out with in college or in high school, rather, were not necessarily the people that I was closest to in college. And later on in my 20s and 30s to where I'm at today, my late 30s, Ish. <laughs> the truth will never come out on that one. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the only reason why I'm doing this show and Moses isn't is because he was busy. Otherwise, anyway. Uh, but the, the, the notion that sometimes there are seasons in friendships and relationships. And so just because, uh, you know, you know somebody who's, you know, their best buds with their high school, you know, uh, classmate when they're in their 60s and 70s doesn't necessarily make you a bad person or incapable of healthy relationships? Absolutely. I think that's so vital. I think in every season, we need to edit ruthlessly and with intention the people in our lives. Not everybody gets a seat at the table of our heart. Everybody is invited to the table of God, but not everyone's invited um, truly to the table of our heart. So we really have to think, is this life-giving? Is this helpful? Is this uh, mutual or is iron sharpening iron and it's okay to be like you know what this isn't this isn't healthy there's 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 shame and codependency or manipulation happening here and fear a deep sense of fear within our relationships but being able to walk away because we crave healthy whole you know, relationships with boundaries is a is an okay thing to well, have. Well, I'm just going to say because oftentimes people end up putting up walls and creating barriers in relationships because in previous relationships they failed to establish healthy boundaries, and right. so as a result, when the relationship went sour, they got hurt, they got bitter, they got angry, and then they got even by deciding that's it, no more friendships, no more relationships, and up the walls go. Yes, and then they decide nobody's going to hurt me. I am the king of my castle, and nobody's going to penetrate its walls. And I think that's such a dangerous thing because, again, we were built for this. And so versus handling that pain and bitterness and saying, where did this come from and how did it develop and how can it be healed and, and, give it, and exchanging it to the Lord, I think that um, we can be pretty dangerous to isolate in those 
types of situations. Tiffany, in your experience, does difficulty in conducting and carrying out healthy, vibrant relationships on the horizontal plane, do challenges there oftentimes suggest that as equally as somebody is challenged relationally horizontally, that that might be indicative of challenges that they have in the in the vertical plane relationship with God? Yeah, I believe so, because we project on to the Lord our fears, our strengths, our weaknesses, and what we feel about ourselves and what we feel about others is often how we feel about God. So if we can get to that first relationship and find healing, then we can go to the people around us with a healthy and whole heart, not expecting them to hurt, shame, bully, or take advantage of us as we may sometimes feel about God if we've been hurt. Those are things we can project onto Him from our, from our earliest experiences. But if we can go to that relationship that truly is what makes us whole and redeems us, um, then I think we can really walk out vibrant relationships um, like we never have before. Does one necessarily have to come before the other, or can you work on two simultaneously? And what I mean by that, Tiffany, is for somebody that has had challenges in uh, establishing or maintaining healthy relationships, or maybe they have uh, been cut off because of uh, death, loss, things of this sort, and now they feel that sense of isolation and loneliness, and yet they also recognize that there is some disconnect in their relationship with God, can they work on both simultaneously, or is it important? Are there benefits to working out some of the details in your relationship with God first before you move on to trying to address relationships um, horizontally with others? I believe that they can happen at the same time. However, I think that it is very difficult. Uh, you know, another person is another human, full of faults and uh, frustrations and fears of their own, and our God doesn't have those. He is He is kind and gracious and peaceful and hopeful. And so I feel like when we can first <laughs> go, to, go to the throne and go before the Father and deal with um, our hurts and bring our baggage and exchange them for grace, and, and just His gentle Spirit can, can slowly soothe the rough edges that we come with, I think that that just truly gives us such vision to go after our relationships with kindness and with peace, not with anger or resentment or bitterness, but um, first asking Him to really make Himself plain in the middle of our mess and in the middle of our broken relationships and just brokenness of the heart. When He is present, things change. When He is able to speak into our situation, things change. So I think while I do believe you can work on both simultaneously because he's just that good, I, I really believe go into the Lord first and pressing into him and offering him the darkest parts and the deepest chambers of our hearts is a very good place to start. The book is called Never Alone, Exchanging Your Tender Hurts for God's Healing Grace, newly published by Abington Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as a lot of the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get information about the book through Tiffany's website at Tiffany Blum, B-L-U-H-M, TiffanyBlum.com. And Tiffany, thanks so much for the time and the insights today. The book again, Never Alone. All right, 6 o'clock from KFAX. 
Let's see what's going on traffic-wise. You're never alone on your commute. We keep you company, and Michael Bennett keeps you informed of what's going on on the road ahead. Michael, what's up? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 